This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, this is a special holiday edition of Power and Politics. I'm David Cochran. We are counting down the top five Canadian political stories of the year. Which headlines had Canadians talking the most or drove the news agenda? We've got a special power panel here to look back at what's dominated the year's news cycle. James Moore is a senior advisor at Denton's and a former Conservative cabinet minister. Brad Levine is with Council Public Affairs. And here with me in Ottawa, Vandana Cotter is a political consultant and former advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Rob Russo is the former CBC Parliamentary Bureau Chief, now writing for The Economist. All right, let's get started, ranking at number five among our top stories for 2023. Saskatchewan isn't considering walking away from any increase in, in the healthcare space. Alberta's share will be about $518 million. They had anticipated that it would be a higher share. We have signed a deal with Stellantis uh, months ago. We need the, the federal government to come to the table and uh, show their support. I think what the federal government done, has done here is, is problematic. The issue isn't the policy, uh, it's, the, it's how the policy is being applied. If the fuel tax is causing affordability problems in the winter because of home heating, it's causing a problem everywhere. If we just could have got away from this very rigid political doctrine that we have to do this and it has to be across the board for this broad country that we have that's so diverse uh, and different, I think we could have avoided this outcome. All right, provincial unrest is number five in our top political stories of the year. Uh, James, it feels like this could be an issue uh, almost every year, as we heard from almost every premier in, in that clip package. You know, the only first minister's meeting this year with the prime minister was Justin Trudeau telling the premiers what Ottawa is going to give them for health care. What do you make of the state of relations right now? Peter Lougheed versus Pierre Trudeau, Danny Williams versus Stephen Harper, Jacques Parizeau versus Jean Chrétien. The tensions between provinces and the federal government is constant in Canadian politics. It's not an unhealthy thing. And there's nothing to, there's nothing in my view that points that the tensions that we have right now that we had in 23, that we look forward to two, 2024, there's nothing to say that these tensions are, you know, particularly catastrophic or debilitating to the ability of the provinces <clears throat> or the federal government to govern. I think it's kind of a constancy in, in Canadian politics. We forget Canada is a confederation. Four provinces came together to create the federal government and the tension that exists between the provinces over jurisdictional battles when you know the constitution was written more than 150 years ago on, on battle lines of public policy that and, and that are frankly incongruent with a lot of today's tensions. So it's I think it's run of the mill. But in that list of, of grievances that was just aired there in that package, those are all good substantive policy debates between different regions in the federal government. I think it's a healthy thing. Yeah, Brad, Brad they, they are substantive uh, policy agreements, as James points out. And perhaps, you know, it, it's just different after everybody was getting along and working together during the pandemic to yeah. sort of see things returning to normal, you know, in federal provincial relations uh, over the course of the last year or a bit. Well, and there, there are some regions in this country where the provincial, uh, the success of the provincial uh, incumbent government uh, is directly related to its uh, its picking fights with uh, uh, with Ottawa. And that that, it, that to to the point has been longstanding. The thing that concerns me this time is, is, is and while you know, the issues change over the, over the years, uh, you know, things like you know, abandoning the, uh, the Canadian pension plan by Alberta, uh, refusing to collect taxes, Saskatchewan's threatening to, to do certain things. It does seem that these grievances, and, and we're not talking about you know, repatriating the Constitution, and therefore let's uh, you know, add a charter of rights. That was obviously a big, a big battle or, uh, you know, f- fixing health care uh, like we did uh, a little while ago. 
Uh, you know, Quebec is quieter than it has been in, in much of my life, uh, but Alberta and Saskatchewan and other resource-dependent provinces, as we, as we face the issue of climate change and had a deal uh, with the effects of climate change, so too is it directly related then to policies that affect uh, resource-extracting uh, regions uh, and provinces that, that rely heavily on royalties. So those are embedded uh, in the system, but it just, it just does seem that this 2023 has been a rough year for FedProv relations. You know, uh, Vandana, Brad touches on what's really been the flashpoint uh, in many, many ways has been the relationship between the federal government and Saskatchewan and Alberta in particular. Yeah, I mean, like, let's take a step back here. There are three key issues that are facing not only Canadians, but across the globe. You know, you see high inflation, a climate crisis, uh, the fallout from the post-pandemic, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, the effects of a war in Ukraine. So I think how that is affecting people here is going to be exactly what James said, this is normal. But I think in some cases, um, whereas we have to find our footing and to prepare Canadians for what the next step is in this global economy, but I think in some cases, the politics are just heightened. And I I think to what Brad's point is, for Saskatchewan and Alberta, the focus is really on the politics to the base to show that there's more to win in like, I'm going to fight for you, we're going to take care of ourselves, rather than coming together to, yes, we came together during a pandemic, but I think it's also important to come together, like, what is the next step for Canada and Canadians as prepare for the, for the next chapter in the global economy? Right. And Rob, this is happening uh, with a more competitive federal political environment too, right? With some of the premiers clearly lining up with Pierre Polyev and his conservatives. Right? Yeah. But it was ever thus. Uh, the nature of Canada is often when there's a Liberal Prime Minister in Ottawa, there are Conservative uh, Premiers elected. And when there's a Conservative pre- uh, Prime Minister in Ottawa, a, a Liberal pro- Premiers are elected. I'm, I'm, I'm less sanguine, though. I, I actually am a little bit more concerned. I see new fissures that, that didn't uh, occur before. Um, uh, even when there were Conservatives in places like New Brunswick, Richard Hatfield, uh, they, they seem to be able to stand up for Canada, stand up for the notion of Canada. I, I, I sense more of a strain on the national fabric than there used to be before. Just the notion of, of an Alberta Sovereignty Act, for mm-hmm. instance, is something that we wouldn't have heard uh, before. Uh, and I think um, it, it might be just a little easier to do that sort of thing because we have, quite frankly, federal leaders that have talked down Canada. Uh, th- that uh, Canada is either broken, according to one uh, federal leader, or at times it's apologizing for being a genocidal killing machine. So who are the people who, who uh, defend Canada, say, yes, we have problems, but we're still a great place? Who are the people who are saying there's a reason why millions of people want to come here every year? We don't hear that as much, and it's easier to talk down Canada as a result, I think. Okay, that, that, that's an interesting take. And, and I, I want to sort of wrap this conversation and get to our number four pick on our list because five and four, they really go together. Have a listen to this. This carbon tax is all pain and no gain. Yeah. We made an exemption specifically for home heating oil, but there will be no other exemption. Huff and they can puff, but their carbon tax house is falling down. Yeah. The Prime Minister has deployed his carbon tax minister, to pressure senators. They seem to stop at nothing to try and, and, and get what they want, including bullying senators. Well, the government admit that its environmental plan isn't working. Certainly, it is very important that we are addressing both affordability concerns and fighting climate change. There is only one party that will axe the carbon tax, only one party that has stood up and fought this tax every step of the way. Conservative politicians are arguing that Canada needs to do less to fight climate change. 
Okay, coming in at number four, climate battles on both the political and legal stage. Uh, James, we heard a lot from federal conservatives and federal liberals there. We also had Premier Daniel Smith calling Stephen Guilbeault a menace to national unity and a menace to Alberta. Uh, it's all about the carbon tax. Where do you think we are on this this year? To be fair, those uh, voices on the other side have said worse about Daniel Smith than she pushed back, but that's fine. It's it's politics. Uh, you know, where we're at with, I mean, the, from 2015 to 2019 and maybe a little bit beyond, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau dined out on the phrase, you know, the economy and the environment have to go hand in hand. Well, now the economy and the environment are colliding because of the inflationary pressures, the, the recession that we're likely in right now, mild or not, we'll see hard landing or soft landing in the first quarter of 24, we'll see. But these two issues are actually colliding. So the the thesis that that Prime Minister Trudeau wrote on for the first half of his mandate so far as Prime Minister uh, is collapsing underneath him because of the pressures of economic stress. And then on the backside, on the, on the environmental argument, um, he's cannibalized his own policy because of the carve-out that he made for home heating fuels. And there's going to be few more demands. We see the Premier of, of, of the Northwest Territories now asking for a carve-out, and other regions of the country will do so as well. So this is going to be a, a fight that will continue, both on the tax side and the cost of living side and the climate side through 2024. It'll put pressure on the Conservatives to have a reasonable climate plan. It'll put pressure on the Liberals to have a reasonable approach to, to, to ramping down uh, the price on everything, which really is a carbon tax. So I think it's it's a perfectly good policy debate as we head into an election campaign. Yeah, Vandana has been a centerpiece of your party's uh, policy uh, from the jump, as, as James points out, but they, there was the carve-out for home heating oil, uh, primarily aimed at unrest in Atlantic Canada. Where do you think the government is on this uh, as 2023 wraps up? Well, I think this is part of the politics of climate change overall. Mm-hmm. I think people care about climate until it costs them something. I think what people forget is that climate change costs people and everyday people every day. We think of why fires, extreme weather, insurance rates, you know, the cost of people losing their homes, like you can't put a price to that. So there is action that needs to be taken now. That's not negotiable. Now, for those who say that carbon, the carbon tax, the price on pollution is, you know, the main thing, there's more to the climate change policy of the government at hand than just that. So I think you have, you know, there is, uh, you know, battery operated plans being built, um, you know, like eliminating single use plastics. Um, I even read today that Trying that, to. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think even today that, you know, the Ontario government is going back into renewable energy. So I think that's actually showing that some of this is working and people know this is not going away. In terms of the carve out, listen, I think the oil costs a lot more. I think this shows that, you know, we do that the government does understand that people are going through a hard time right now. Where can we make how where can we make adjustments without you know, changing where we meet our carbon targets. You know, Rob, one of my first assignments in the Parliamentary Bureau is when you sent me to Vancouver in the uh, spring of, of 2016 to cover the first minister's meeting between Trudeau and a very different group of premiers where there emerged a consensus to sign on to a lots national of, plan. Of happy snaps of people hugging each other. I saw. Brad Wall uh, yeah. was the only yeah. outlier. You could not yeah. recreate that meeting now if you wanted to. No, and I, I do believe that some of the fault here lies with the federal government. Um, look, they've had trouble drawing a connection between the carbon tax and, and climate action. Um, what have we seen? Uh, we, we're, we are paying carbon taxes. We haven't seen until very recently a, a, a plan for mitigation and adaptation. We've seen wildfires happening. Uh, we, we've seen floods. Um, and, and that's despite the fact that we're, we're paying 
uh, a carbon tax. They, they did, as James said, undermine their own policy in a way that's near fatal. Uh, and the other thing that happened, I think that that's notable, is that Joe Biden in the United States was elected president and he decided to take another approach. Mm. Uh, you know, I used to be a, an outright supporter of the carbon tax. I still believe user pay is probably the best way to go. But we've seen in Washington that there are other ways to get people to change their behavior. There are other ways to get um, industry uh, not just lurched into action, but launched into action. And we've seen that with, with, uh, with Biden's policy, the IRA down there. So, so Brian, on this, uh, we did get a, a climate emissions update uh, from the federal government showing they will exceed their target in 2026 of reducing emissions by 20%. And they're still going to fall short of the 40% reduction by 2030, but they're going to get to about 36% reductions. So is it worth it? Is all the political drama and the fighting worth it if that's the kind of result you got? Well, that's that's likely what the next federal election will uh, be in large part about, uh, because you're, you're going to have uh, two distinct uh, approaches. One is a consumer based carbon price uh, and the other one is to is to axe it. And I, I I don't know what Mr. Polyev has to replace that unless it's more of a uh, a policy of uh, acceleration of uh, renewables and electrification. So. We're going to have to see uh, whether or not that is the case. The question would, would, I think that the Liberals have to defend is, what would our targets be, what would our emissions outputs be had we not uh, taken this particular action? So then we'll be debating the effectiveness of mm-hmm. the tax. I, I, I do think it's important, though, that the, uh, to talk a little bit about how you know, their carve-out of the home heating oil uh, completely undermines it. It actually speaks to, to topic number five about uh, you know, national unrest, how one region of the country can get relief, predominantly one region. I know that there's people throughout yep. the land with oil, but it's overwhelming. And let's, let's be fair, this is a political uh, you know, show. It was done because Atlantic Canadian Liberal MPs uh, were getting an earful from their constits. Um, the, the fury that's going to, that, you know, that is in the land of other, other Canadians who also heat their homes uh, every year, uh, but use other fuels that, that, that weren't carved out. We have a Saskatchewan provincial election coming up in October, and we have a BC election. It'll be interesting to see what role uh, the discussion about the fairness of the federal government's application of the carbon pricing uh, will play in those two provincial elections in late 2024. James, I've got about 60 seconds on this. Uh, where do you think it goes uh, in 2024 on this? Do we get a clear plan from Pierre Polyev and his team? Does Saskatchewan make good on its threats to not collect? Wh- what do you think happens? Uh, Pierre Polyev, yes, Saskatchewan, maybe, uh, but but there, there's going to have to be you know a, a collision here, and, and voters will decide. And, and it won't just be about the substance of the policy, but the credibility of the voices behind those policies themselves. Um, you know, Pierre Polyev has said technology, not taxes. It's a perfectly reasonable approach. You look at the electrification of our grid, electrification of the transportation sector broadly. There's that's a reasonable saying. It wasn't quite as reasonable five years ago. It's more reasonable now. And the Liberals themselves have have, have carved out their own, their own argument against their own policy by creating that breach on on home heating fuels. And I think the demands will come from more regions of the country as well. Okay, now for our number three top story of the year. China uh, and others uh, engage in foreign interference in Canada. He is perfectly happy to let a foreign authoritarian government interfere in our elections as long as they're helping him. We can't wait two and a half years for more process to unfold to get the answers we need about interference in our democracy. There are many other people in the country who could do this job. I've been asked to do it. The issue of foreign interference deserves serious and robust debate. He is not impartial. 
He needs to get out of the way. David Johnston is an eminent Canadian. The special rapporteur can no longer continue to do his work. To urge our government for an independent public inquiry. Justice Ogg will be tasked with examining and assessing interference. Credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen. If these allegations are true, they represent an outrageous affront. We will not tolerate any form of foreign interference. All right, foreign interference is our third biggest story of 2023. The revelations we learned about alleged meddling from China, Russia, and India prompted a public inquiry that will begin hearings in the new year. Uh, Rob, I remember the beginning of the year, it was all about what China had done or would do in past elections and in future elections. And as 2023 came to an end, it's all about India and the allegations that played the role in the assassination of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. Yeah, and I think that there was one key moment uh, during this entire debate that set the stage for the rest of the year. Uh, and, and that was um, in the spring, I believe, when the prime minister was... Um, being um, regularly beleaguered about why he would not make a decision on an inquiry and why ultimately he decided to have somebody else make that decision. It was when uh, Justin Trudeau said, because even if I did make a decision, people wouldn't necessarily have confidence in that decision. I thought that was key and sets up a lot of the trouble that he had for the rest of the year, whether it was getting up in the House of Commons and saying, Uh, There's credible evidence. Uh, Normally, something like that would galvanize the country and people would say, we have a real problem. We need to come together and rally around the flag. But there was instantly, instantly there were questions about the credibility of that. Uh, And I think it bedeviled him as well uh, during the, the entire China interference story. There's lots to be played out. So much that we learned in the last, just in the, in the last few months of the year alone, we, we learned that uh, India's role here uh, is exponentially larger than we thought. We learned that we don't know a lot of what's going on here. We're being told by the Americans and depending on their intelligence. Um, and, and so there is much, much, much to be learned about uh, foreign interference in Canada. And it's going to be one of the big stories of the next year. Well, Vandana, just to pick up on the point that Rob made uh, in September when the prime minister stood and made those allegations uh, in the House of Commons, there was a lot of reflexive punditry uh, siding with Modi in a lot of mm-hmm. ways and, and blaming Trudeau for this and demanding to see evidence. And then we get the stunning allegations in the indictment in the U.S. case, which really added a lot of context to this. Yeah, it shows like the climate right now and people are just, you know, questioning our officials, questioning our institutions. And, you know, the fact that he can say something, the prime minister, something so important and immediately not just from members of the opposition, but from others saying that that can't be right. Either A, I think the problem is people need to know what they know and what they don't know. Um, I have studied Indian politics. I follow it very closely. Um, not everyone does. So I feel like there's an assumption that India is the biggest democracy. How can this happen? But going back to the earlier point of the show, pride in the country, pride in institution. And I think it's really sad that when we're questioning our prime minister, listen, I didn't agree with Mr. Harper's politics, but I respected the man, nor would I ever say, question his judgment on something like that. So I think it really says that, you know, what people are talking about right now and, and, the, and the tone 
and that needs to change because like foreign interference is really important, um, and we all have to get behind it. So, so James, one of the other big things we learned uh, throughout this over the course of the year was the vulnerability Canada has uh, to activities of hostile foreign states, and the factions and challenges within our intelligence services have been laid bare through the leaks and the hunt for leaks, and and the, the apparently the motivation being the disappointment and the slow action, a uh, pace of action to deal with this. Um, what's your take on, on this number three topic of the year? Canada is the only country in the world who can brag this following list of, of its reach in the world. We're, we are truly perhaps the most global country in the world. We're the only country in the world that is a founding member of the UN, is a partner in NAFTA, is a member of NATO, is part of the Five Eyes, member of the Francophonie, and a member of the Commonwealth, part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Canada-Europe Free Trade Agreement. We have free trade agreements with more than half the countries and economies of the world. We're a truly global country, and our immigration inflow, the multicultural footprint that we see, and particularly in our largest cities in the country, Canada is everywhere in the world, so therefore, the world is very much in Canada. And so I think what a lot of these incidents have shown, have opened up, is, is the stress of domestic politics being reflected of diaspora politics of what's happening with the rest of the world being reflected here at home and it's creating a new tension canada has always been about now the, the the responsibility of the federal government has always been about national unity at the start of this country it was indigenous and non-indigenous it was catholic and protestant french and english east and west those tensions have always been there and they still remain there but now there's the, these new tensions that are coming up in diaspora politics spread across the country and domestic tensions that are reflective of tensions elsewhere in the world. We see this with Ukraine. We Mm -hmm. see this with Palestine and and Israel. We see this with China and with India. And I think the prime minister of this country and the foreign minister need to have a clear and consistent robust message that Canada's national interest will come first above and beyond these, these other stresses. It's very easy for me to say that. It's very difficult to do that because the political tether of all these communities and their impact on our politics and nominations and leaderships is deep. But it's but it, we we're now having a conversation about it for the first time in my lifetime, and it's very important that this conversation come to the surface and that it's dealt with responsibly by political parties, institutions, and the government of Canada. Right, not just a conversation about it, a whole public inquiry into it uh, after the sort of the, the aborted David Johnston special rapporteur mm-hmm. uh, approach that they initially uh, launched. Uh, Justice Ogg will be dealing with this, uh, you know, into the new year. Uh, where do you think it goes? Uh, well, David, we'll have to see uh, where the uh, inquiry takes us. I think, I think the, the bigger issue, particularly as we head uh, into 2024, is, is the political implications that the Prime Minister's lack of leadership on the, uh, particularly the, the Chinese election interference uh, accusations was. The absence of a clear message, the, the absence of clear direction, I think created a bit of a vacuum, which is why for uh, you know, the next episode that came along, which was you know, dealing with uh, the accusations about India's interference in Canadian domestic politics uh, with the assassination in Surrey, um, he, I, you know, he set himself up, I think, for you know Canadians to kind of maybe not see him as sure-footed uh, on the international stage domestically, and that's a problem for Trudeau as he looks to 2024 and the potential election 18 months uh, or so away. Uh, Rob, Rob, how do you see the potential political fallout of all of this domestically? Like, uh, you know, has the, the revelations towards the end of the year changed things? Is it dependent on what we get from the inquiry? Or, or how does it play out, do you think? We don't know. But the truth is, uh, I think that one of the reasons why there has been some inertia in Canada is because there are domestic political questions at play. Because um, a, a lot of the groups, uh, the, the, a lot of the people who've come to Canada uh, are, are organized, mobilized, 
um, monetized and vote and have an impact. And, and I think that that's held back uh, some governments in, in terms of taking some action. Um, there, there's uh, j- just look at some of the fastest growing votes, uh, voting groups in the country. Muslim voters are now among the fastest growing mm-hmm. um, uh, voting groups in the country. That will have an impact. I think it has had an impact in certainly in debates in, in the Liberal caucus, for instance, uh, and, and in, in the way parties are going to appeal to people. It's the same with Chinese Canadians. Uh, governments the last 15 years have been bedeviled by what to do about China. And in part, uh, their calculus is complicated by the fact that there are a million Chinese Canadians who vote. And mm-hmm. those votes matter. Okay. Now, let's get to number two. We condemn this multi-front terror attack by Hamas against Israeli people. Countless of those lives have been lost or put in danger as a direct result of the sadistic attacks of Hamas. The only solution is a political solution. There is no military solution to this conflict. We've been calling for uh, weeks now for humanitarian pauses. Every loss of life in this conflict is the direct consequence of Hamas's conduct. We must not give up to violence. We need to think about how can we stay united. Our diversity includes diversity of perspectives and opinions, but not to hate. Not to lash out with threats of violence or actual violence. Coming in at number two, the fallout here in Canada from the Israel-Hamas war. Uh, Vandana, a lot of clips there of political leaders talking about this particular issue, but you know the more compelling image uh, in a lot of ways is the protests we've seen in the streets of Canada's largest cities, but also the concerns in the Jewish community about shootings at schools, firebombings at mosques. It's had an enormous impact in this country domestically. Yeah, I mean... Um this is a situation where tensions rising high, um, not just for the communities involved, but broadly. I mean, people are allies between all communities are also affected by this. Um, people want to, they feel helpless here. They don't know how to act. They don't know how what's happening or, you know, what their political leaders should be doing. But really, it's a time that people just want to be heard. And it's difficult to do that. But what political leaders need to do is gather together with community leaders and have one-on-one conversations. And I think my state's that don't go to places of worship and just speak at them. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be, they don't want to just hear what you're saying, that everyone's saying, like, you know, diversity is our strength, inclusion is a choice, all those things. People believe that. They understand that hate is wrong. But they want to be heard from their perspective in a viable way. And I sat in a meeting with a politician with a number of Muslim leaders. And it was a hot meeting. It was about an hour and a half long, but by the end, it came down. People were talking about solutions for combating hate here in Canada. People were saying, we came to this country because we wanted peace. We wanted to escape sectarian violence. So how do I make sure that me and my Jewish neighbors are good and we are you know, respecting each other and become, and like, you know, sharing friendship? So that, needs to, that tone needs to be taking place. It is hard to do that, especially with emotions running high, but taking it down to a grassroots level and really connecting with people on the ground and understanding you know, where their fears are and helping to bridge those gaps and, 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 and build that divide between Canadians is going to be really important. Brad, uh, you're in Toronto, a city which has been one of the big centres uh, for disagreement and protests uh, on this, along with Montreal in particular. Uh, how do you think this issue ha- has affected uh, domestic politics here at home and the tests it, it's put on, on Canada's political leaders? A tremendous uh, test on, on, on political leaders. Uh, and we were, you know, talking about it under issue number four, is that the, 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 the face of the country has changed over the last uh, while as we welcome uh, more people from around the world. 
uh, so too do those conversations about events happening elsewhere in the world uh, are, are affecting us in, in new ways. Uh, and this, you know, is a long-standing uh, issue in the Middle East, and certainly Canadians have had diverse opinions for a long while. But I don't recall in my lifetime when I've seen uh, people charge uh, restaurants and cafes and yell at people sitting there uh, eating uh, a meal. Uh, the level of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia is uh, is heightened at this stage, and it really, you know, begs the question, you know. Are we changing, or is this merely a reflection of what we were prior to uh, the Hamas, uh, the brutal Hamas attack? Uh, were, the, were the underlying currents there before the attack, or did the attack trigger uh, something something that is new, uh, which is interesting? So, how does this country deal uh, with this hate? This is not the only issue where can, where people living in Canada are are seeing loved ones back home uh, suffer tremendously, but it is the one that makes. Uh, the most news and it's an opportunity you know i mean i I think that's good advice about how we talk about this as a country because this is not who we have traditionally been and i think for a lot of canadians who have been here for a while generations uh here in this country from a variety of backgrounds do not see themselves in what we're seeing in some of these protests james you you made a really good point in the earlier segment about canada as a global country and and how we're touched by so many things because of the population changes over the years when you look at something like what is happening the divisions this is causing in canada how does a federal government how does a cabinet having been a cabinet minister approach something like this sometimes it's with nuance and trying to feather the differences and and being a conciliator but at other times and this is one of those times it requires clear and firm clarity a group of kids went to a music festival and they were slaughtered and murdered in a genocidal attack because of who they are there's no there's no reconciliation with that it's mass murder of people because they're jews flat out and this is to have people in Nathan Phillips Square or on the steps of the Vancouver Art Gallery not saying, let's have a two-state solution, not saying, let's have both sides be understood, but chanting and singing from the river to the sea, uh, Palestine shall be free, and call and cheering and celebrating the mass murder of... You know, last year or the year before, there was the shooting in Uvalde, um, Texas, of children who were murdered by a madman. These are people with a political agenda who, are, who went and murdered children and kids at a music festival. And people are, imagine if somebody was celebrating the murder of kids in, in a mass shooting in a school in the United States. We would think that they are insane and out of touch and immoral c- citizens who need to be confronted and, and be made to understand that, that their views are not welcome in Canada. Well, we have a mass murder of people because they're Jews and, and the mass murder is being celebrated. Not the case for Palestine, not the case for ceasefire or, or a case for a two-state solution. The celebration of the murder of innocent kids at a music festival. So on moments like that, that requires pure moral clarity from the prime minister of the country and a drawing of a line of what our moral standards are collectively as a country, regardless of where you come from. And I think there was a moment there where, where Prime Minister Trudeau missed his moment for sure. And, and I think, you know, I had a very heartbreaking conversation with a neighbor of mine who this year is deciding not to put up any uh, decorations around their house for the holidays and for Hanukkah 
fearful of an attack on their home, keeping their kids away from school. I mean, this is a, it, it's been heartbreaking to see the, the intolerance and bigotry at home in Canada, in part because we don't have leadership at the top that confronts clear evil in, and, and makes it clear what Canada's standards are in terms of moral justice. Rob, well, we've seen you know, the outrage over the attacks. We've seen the fear of the Jewish community. Uh, I've had Palestinian Canadians on this show who have lost dozens in excess of 100 family members in the bombardment that followed these awful attacks of October 7th. Um, what's your sense of, of where things have played out in the country this year? Well, you know, one grows weary of hearing, this is not Canada, this is not us, uh, from our political leaders. Because the truth is, it's beginning to look like us. Mm. And, and as a result, needs to be confronted and confronted directly. Uh, it's very, very difficult, uh, it seems, for uh, for some political leaders to do that. Uh, I think the prime minister did stumble uh, and, and did make mistakes, particularly around uh, the, uh, the uh, bombing of, of the hospital in Gaza, which mm. I think hurt the government's credibility. Uh, I think that there has been a clear evolution in the government of Canada's position. Uh, and, and, and you look at uh, the recent statement that, that uh, with New Zealand and with Australia that shows Canada laying down firm conditions now that require Hamas to essentially surrender, return hostages uh, and, and go away. Uh, uh, don't be part of the political process. That is a clear evolution in their position from mm -hmm. what the government was saying initially when it was uh, um, uh, talking about pauses. So I, I think there's a reason for that. I think that there were two moments of real tension in the Liberal caucus this year. One of them was when Liberal MPs uh, reportedly got up and talked to the Prime Minister about the failures of his leadership. Right. Uh, that was a clear moment of tension. There have been others very, very recently uh, uh, real division in the Liberal caucus between MPs who uh, are uh, trying to fight for a ceasefire, m many of them um, uh, of, of Muslim and Arab origin, and MPs who are calling uh, uh, for Hamas to go away uh, and, and to lay down their arms and, and, uh, and to defend Israel and Israel's right to defend itself. That forced, I'm told, the Prime Minister to essentially throw a fire blanket over a, a, a growing fire in his caucus uh, and say, we don't talk about this anymore this way. Uh, so there are real problems within the Prime Minister's own caucus on this issue. And I, and I wonder I wonder if that ha hamstrung the, the Liberal government a little bit over this past few months. Okay, finally, a quick last word from you. You know, I have a bit more context on, like, the caucus means. I think on the question on, you know, failure of leadership, I think the question was more about, you know, how are we moving forward? How mm -hmm. do we, you know, Pierre Polyev is making inroads. How do we fight back? How do right. we... Sh You're how talking do we about the London back? caucus yes. retreat. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's more of what it was, not like you were failing as a prime minister. Right. I think people are, I think caucus is 100% behind the prime minister. And I think they know that he is the best leader for them to go into an election as of today. But I think in terms of the other question that you asked, I think... You know, this is part of having a diverse caucus. You'll have diversity of views, and it's important for the Prime Minister to listen to that. I do think he has been clear on his support for the Jewish community, on his support for the Muslim community, as well as Israel's right to defend itself, and that we do have to defeat Hamas. But I think that the statement that was released about, you know, calling for a ceasefire has been worked with our allies, which is how right. Canada wants to work with their foreign policy. Okay, now for our top Canadian political story of the year. The cost of living is a challenge. Canadians have been struggling. Let Canadians afford to eat, heat, and house themselves. Building more homes. Lowering the prices for families. Discount across a basket of food products. This government's unwilling to take on the real problem 
which is corporate greed. Grocery rebate is going out across the country. Eight years after he promised to make housing more affordable, he doubled the cost. The opposition leaders bickering won't help get houses built. Life costs more. Work doesn't pay. Housing costs have doubled. Well, to nobody's surprise, the sky-high cost of living dominated the political discourse this year and really drove the political agenda and political opinion. Brad, uh, l- let's start with you. I mean, this has fundamentally reshaped uh, political views in the country, driving Pierre Polyev to, to a front-runner status. And the government has responded with targeted measures of some sort. But where do you think this goes in 2024 and the effect it's had this year? Um, I think it's going to uh, certainly last throughout much of 2024. There are forecasts to suggest the economy will slow down, and and many are are suggesting, uh, many uh, observers are suggesting that interest rates may begin to uh, come down from their current level. Uh, that's cold comfort for a lot of folks who are, have had a hard time making ends meet. And while targeted uh, matters are, are helpful for those that uh, that can take advantage of them, um, it's just it's it's just difficult to govern in a time of uh, with rising costs. But let's take a look at the, the political implications of of, of 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 the cost of living increases. It's it's almost colored everything. Uh, you know, political in this country. If you take a look at it, everything from the whether or not the institution of the Bank of Canada uh, has a, a, a worthy uh, mandate, i.e., a two percent uh, inflationary rate, uh, when we've been, we've come very close to it, yet yet interest rates remain very stubborn. To housing policy, what kind of housing should be built? Uh, to uh, whether or not we should be going after the, the grocery chains uh, in this country because of the high costs, uh, whether we should be taxing windfall profits, whether it's in things like gasoline, to help offset uh, those targeted uh, measures earlier. Almost everything that we look at uh, in, 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 in federal and, and in many cases provincial politics has been covered, colored uh, by the, the cost of, of living. So it, 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 I think it's worthy of its top spot uh, for 2023, and it will play a role uh, in the early part of 2024. The question remains is, will it, will it be an issue by the next federal election? And what impacts will it have on, uh, on, on the discussion uh, in, I would say, let's say 12 to 18 months from now? James, uh, the, the interest rate decisions are, are such a massive part of this. And if you look at the, the shift in political polling, it really started in June and July when Tiff Macklem undid the pause and raised rates back to back a month. Uh, I, I mean, can a shift in interest rates shift the mood on this or is this all baked in now? Where are we? No, I mean, look, this will continue to be a story through at least the first half of next year. But also, as there was a long tail on the on the upspike of interest rates and its impact on the housing sector, even if they start climbing them down in the second and third quarters of 2024, the impact of that over that over will take you know 12 to 18 months to then be reabsorbed to give people a sense of confidence that they can start spending again and borrowing again uh, at a reasonable rate in order to buy homes. So, so th- this will have a consequence. I wouldn't say a generational consequence, but it'll have certainly a a decades-long consequence from the beginning, uh, you know, from COVID through the the, the spike and in inflation rates and then the cost of living spike and then what it's going to take to ramp it down and give people a better sense of confidence. It will, in my view, dominate the issues of the next election campaign, uh, how the Liberals handled COVID, not just on the health side, but on the economic side and what the fallout has been and plans for the future. So, so it was the top story of 23. It likely will be uh, uh, one of the top stories of 24 as well. Rhonda, the Liberals would very much like it to not be the top story of 2024, <laughs> I think, unless we're talking about the improvement in the cost of living situation in Canada. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the liberals definitely know that cost of living is a key uh, piece in every Canadian's mind right now. It's not even just in Canada, but around the world. I mean, you see, you know, in the UK, the Netherlands, every prime minister or president mm-hmm. is dealing with this right now. So it's not just only to Canada. Um, you see they're, every day they're talking about affordability, they're talking about housing, they're talking about, you know, um, there was that announcement recently about cutting interest rates for small businesses with uh, a deal with Visa and MasterCard. They are trying to find creative solutions to, to deal with the, with the crisis right now, knowing they don't have full control over it. But I right. think uh, 18 months is a long time in politics. You know, what will be the issue today may not be the issue by then, but I think they definitely have to show they have a steady hand and can handle these problems. Rob, so much of the challenge for a government in a situation like this is they have almost no influence on the cost of food. It's all supply shocks, you know, caused by war, climate change, and other things on, on a global scale. They can't interfere with the Bank of Canada on interest rates. Well, I don't know. They have some influence. I mean, there's a Minister of Housing for a reason. Uh, So they do have some influence. Look, the the trouble the government has is that even if it can get solutions going immediately, Mm -hmm. uh, it it will take a long, long time to get housing affordability down because there's a shortage of housing stock. And you're not going to solve that within the time period of uh, remaining in in this government. Uh, As someone who's uh, negotiating a mortgage right now, I can tell you I've gone back in the last couple of weeks because mortgage rates have come down. Long-term bond rates have come down. Um, And liberals are being told in caucus over and over again, nervous liberals, that we have a long runway in front of us, as Vandana has just said. Uh, But uh, even if they get to the end of that runway uh, and the economy is, if not soaring again, uh, flying at a decent pace, are, are the Liberals going to get credit for that? Uh, or as people like me go to renegotiate or negotiate mortgages over the next year, and that's about 20% of Canadian homeowners are going to do that, they're going to feel the shock of interest rates that have gone up about three times what they were a couple right. of years ago. They'll feel that shock, and they're not going to like it, and they're going to be looking for somebody to blame. Well, Brad, that's going to be one of the challenges for the Liberals, right? I mean, they have a lot of time until the next election, but in that time, tens of thousands of Canadians are going to be renewing their mortgage and carrying those higher payments into the election cycle. Well, and especially uh, those that are going for, you know, two or or, or more years uh, within their renewed mortgage, they're going to be paying that new higher rate um, during during that election campaign. And, you know, as somebody who's been... Uh, who also has a mortgage, uh, you don't forget uh, how long you've been paying that higher rate, uh, and you certainly uh, it's, it's certainly going to be an issue uh, uh, during during the next election. Will there need to be a policy response uh, to this because of the number of Canadians and how much money is going to be renewed in 2024? So, James, uh, what can the government do? Can the government do anything to, to get ahead of this in a meaningful way between now and the next vote? Uh, no. Uh, Ronald Reagan said, you know, famously, are you better off than you were four years ago? And rightly or wrongly, you know, that politics operates within a, within a, within a, a, a time envelope. And 100% of Canadians will have renewed their mortgage between the time that Justin Trudeau was reelected in 2019 and when the next election is, and of course through 21 as well. But 100% of Canadians will be looking at their cost of living and they'll be asking themselves the question, am I financially better off now than I was before? And there yes, Vondel is right. There are a lot of things that impacted that, but Canadians only have one opportunity to strike an X and to make a judgment on the quality of their life relative to how it was uh, you know, more than five years ago, and I don't think that judgment is going to be favorable of Prime Minister Trudeau. Okay, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Happy holidays, happy new year. Thank you to the Power Panel, James Moore, Brad Levine, Vanda Cotter, and Rob Russo. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. 
Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.